Well, today we're going to be looking at the Word of God from Luke chapter 1. Last week we talked about the Magnificent, which is Mary's prayer that she prays uh, when she goes to visit Elizabeth and the baby jumps within Elizabeth. This is baby John the Baptist, who is leaping for joy at just being in the presence of Christ, who is still just a baby inside Mary. Isn't that incredible? Today we're going to look at Zechariah's prayer and his prophecy that he has. He's the father of John the Baptist. Before we do that, I need to give you a little kind of history lesson about some things that are going on. Um, we're going to look at the word here, and I want to give you some background to the things that are happening in Scripture so that we can come to the word with understanding about the context, because God plans things out really well. He is never taken by surprise, and he never does things that are not in his timing. Have you heard that old adage that a woman is never late, but she just arrives exactly when she wants to? You know? That applies to men, too. But the Lord is never late. He arrives exactly when he plans to because his planning is much bigger than ours, although many times we cry out to him, Lord, where are you? I haven't heard from you for a long time, and we feel distant. But God is not distant, and in fact, he arrives exactly when he's planning. When we look at Luke chapter 1, uh, we are stepping into a world that had a lot of context to it, a lot of understanding of things that were historical that we don't always get when we read the passage. We're going to start reading right away here at Luke chapter 1. Before we read Zechariah's big prophecy that he has at the birth of John the Baptist, let's read about his birth being foretold. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to start reading at verse 8. This is Zechariah the, the priest. In verse, chapter, verse 8 here, it's going to talk about what's happening to him. So let's read together. Now while he, that Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many to, of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now the story goes on in this wonderful scripture that Zechariah, who knows his wife is very old and kind of past the time of having kids, is saying uh, to the angel, how do I know this is going to happen? And as a sign, what does the angel do? Do you remember good Bible students? He mutes him. So, he, so Zechariah speaks out a word of doubt, basically, and the angel says, Don't you know who I am? I've come straight from the throne. I'm a messenger of God. You shall not speak until this passes. And so Zechariah comes out of the temple, and he's trembling, and he's seen a vision, but he's not speaking because he's unable to. And so all the people there are in awe of what's happening. They're mostly in awe of what's happening, not just because this is miraculous, not just because it is something very much out of the ordinary, but they're also in awe because God has not spoken like this for a long, long time. It's been about 400 years of relative silence from God. That's a long time. 
that's generations. It's a long time for us sometimes to try to think back to when things were different, like we just talked about with this, the phones, how they've changed. Imagine for these people, if, if our kids don't even know what it's like to have a dial tone, what would it be like for these people who haven't heard from God forever? They don't know even what a dial tone sounds like for the Lord, if you will, if you can follow the metaphor there. That's an incredible thing. Not only is that happening, but what the, the context of this actual particular verse is very important as well. So Zechariah, he's a priest, and he's going in to do a particular service. His service is to burn incense. Do you all know what incense is? It's kind of that smelly stuff that when you go into like the Indian bazaars, you smell it all the time. And uh, people burn it, and it smells nice. There's a pleasing aroma to it, generally. If there's a lot of it, sometimes it can be a little overkill. But incense is a really nice-smelling stuff. It was one of the gifts that the wise men brought Christ when he was born. Incense was prescribed by God for worship to be used in the temple in specific ways. Uh, Roy, can we put our little picture up there? This is a picture of the temple. As you can see in this, there's the big courtyard. In the courtyard, there's two major things, if you can see them. On the very bottom of the picture, there is a big basin of water. You can see the scale there of the guy who's next to it. It's giant and huge. It was referred to as the sea, like the seashore, like the sea, because it was very big. It held a lot of water. It's like a swimming pool. And the idea of that was to be able to do cleansings and different things. And so there's water for purification for washing. On the top of the picture on the right-hand side, there's the big altar that you climb up with the steps. And there's fire there. So imagine God's giant, giant, giant barbecue pit. It's kind of what it is. And so people would come into the courtyard. There's a fence and a gate around the actual temple itself. So there's an outer court, and then this is the inner court. As you come into the inner court, there's these major furnishings. There's washings for the sacrifices. And people would bring their sacrifices to God to be burned on the altar. Now, why did they do that? Why are they bringing all these sacrifices? The answer is because God told them they needed to. So we find out from the Bible right away, if you take the Bible as one giant long story, right away in the Bible, God said, after he made man and woman, if you sin against me, if you are disobedient, there is one punishment. That punishment is not time out. It's not a spanking. It's not getting your iPad taken away. It's not one of those things. It's death. And so he told Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree of the garden except this one tree. Don't eat from this one. Why did he choose that one tree? I don't know. He gets to decide because he created it all. And so he has that one tree. He said, don't eat from this tree. Everything else, fair game. Go for it. And he gave man and woman responsibility together that they should tend the garden. They should rule it. They should take care of it. They're naming animals. They're doing all kind of great things. So they are responsible for it. Imagine God is the king and they're like the governors who are governing this creation. Well, they're tempted right away. We find out in Genesis chapter 3, they're tempted by the serpent. They go to the tree. They see that it looks good for eating and good for wisdom. They think that it will make them like gods. The temptation was twofold. First was, did God really say you shouldn't eat from this tree? Did he really say that? And so they're questioning now in their hearts. I Pretty sure he said it. He said it, right? That kind of reaction. The second temptation was, God's holding you back. He knows if you eat from this tree, you're going to be like him. You're going to gain power, and you don't have to do what he says anymore. And so the temptation is not just eat some fruit. 
Um, nowadays, maybe if, if it was the donuts like we had today, it'd be, be challenging. But fruit itself, why would, I mean, mankind's not going to just fall for fruit. It's not the fruit. It was the promise of this glory that would happen. If you just eat this, if you just click on this window, you're going to be a millionaire. And then the virus comes on your computer. Like, how did this happen? It's the same kind of thing. It's the same lie. Did they say not to click? It's the same kind of thing that's happening. And so man and Eve, Eve is tricked first, but they eat together the fruit. And immediately God's judgment of death comes, not just on them, but also on the creation because they're the governors. God had made them to be the governors. And he told them, if you eat, you'll die. So in order for man to come now back into God's presence, they cannot do so without blood being shed. Because of the sin, the rebellion, the disobedience, the brokenness, if you will, of that relationship, the only way to come back is through blood. Now, that sounds really gross, doesn't it? Because it is. It sounds horrifying and horrible in every way because it really is. But the problem is we are broken in our relationship from God. We are separated from him because of our disobedience. And the only way to come into his presence was with blood. The temple itself was the representation of the place where God was on earth. How did the Israelites know that God was there? He really was there. This is God who's everywhere. He can do whatever he wants. How did they know God was there? Yes, when they erected the temple, they dedicated it, and immediately there came this glory that filled the temple, and it looked like two things. It looked like the pillar of cloud and the pillar of smoke, the, the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel through the, through the uh, wilderness came and rested upon the temple. And that pillar of fire came resting upon the temple, and they knew God had taken possession of this place. And that's where he was. And so as the people come in, they know God's there. It wasn't just a feeling, which I imagine if you went there, you would feel something. I would imagine. The Queen of Sheba went, if you recall, with... Solomon, and her breath was taken away at the side of the temple. And it wasn't just because it was beautiful and golden. Imagine for a moment it's in full operation and what it would look like with all the people actually offering sacrifices. If every one of us for our families brought a couple animals, just we few in this room, that'd be a lot of animals to barbecue on that thing. That's just us. What if it's the entire city? What if it's the entire nation? There's a lot of blood being shed at this place. And that's yucky to hear, but it's important that we understand that context because if we don't understand it, then when the angel speaks to Zechariah, it's just sterile. It's not sterile. He's walking through that stuff to get into the inner court. And Zechariah's job when he goes inside is to go into this main part. You can see inside the building there that there's kind of a guy standing in there. I know it's kind of hard to see from the back. And there's steps that go up. And in the back, there's a big curtain that holds that room aside. And the very back room was called the Most Holy of Holies. That's where the throne of God was, which was the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the fire was. And if you went in there, you're in trouble because you're not allowed to go in there. In fact, God had prescribed for his worship only one person one time a year would go into that room. And that was the high priest who would come in and offer a special sacrifice, which was for the sin of the people. That once a year, there was one special sacrifice that would cleanse, if you will, God's judgment on all the people that they could come before him. 
All the other times, they're doing regular sacrifices, and they could come into that inner chamber, the first one, which was called the holy place. And in the holy place, there was an altar that was positioned between the holy place and the curtain that, that divided the most holy place that was called the altar of incense. And that special altar was a table. It was about this big. It looked kind of like the altar that was outside that was burning with fire. It had little kind of horn-looking things on the side. And they would come in, the priests would come in every morning, every evening, and make sure that incense was burning before the Lord's presence. Why would they do that? The book of Leviticus chapter 16 tells us that God had prescribed incense to be burning ever before him for a pleasant aroma that would come. It would also be a representation to the people of God's presence. Because remember, not everybody can actually go into the fire room, if you will. But when you walk in that room, it was filled with smoke, which is the people walked out of the, their slavery in Egypt. They were led by a pillar of smoke that went before them. And so this smoke represented God's very presence with them in that place, which not everybody was allowed to go into. So there was a pleasing aroma. There was God's presence with them. But also that smoke was representative of the prayers of the people that were coming up. We hear in the New Testament uh, of the prayers of the people are the golden bowls of incense in the book of Revelation that the elders are holding. And it's the prayers of the saints that are being poured out to God. It's that same pleasing aroma that's coming up. It's that smoky goodness that's all around that God is receiving because it's going in also to the most holy place. And so Zechariah's job was to come in and do three things. One, represent God's presence in the temple by burning the incense. Second, to have a pleasing aroma for God. And third, to represent the prayers of the people being received by God, which every morning and every evening was rekindled and kindled by the fire that came from the altar where they were burning the sacrifices. It didn't have its own fire. They had to bring fire from that altar in. Those are significant things. They're kind of weird, lost in the minutia kind of things. But they're important for our context. Because when Zechariah goes into the temple and he lights the fire again after 400 years of not having heard God, he's not just startled to see the angel. He's also in the middle of his service and duty to God. Think for a moment, if you will, uh, that you were able to go into the palace of a king. Right? So you're able to go into the palace of a king. You walk inside and you decide that you're going to go up and have a word with that king because you want to ask him a question. And so you walk straight from the back to the front, you climb the stairs, you walk right to the throne, and you reach out your hand like this to shake his hand. What will happen to you? What do you think will happen? Would you even make it to the stairs? As soon as you start marching down the aisle, you're either invited or you're not invited. And if you are invited, you certainly don't come with any kind of weird gestures. Why not? Just think in a human way with me. Why not? Because the Secret Service is going to break your legs. Because they, they don't know what you're doing. That's not okay to just come marching in and just do whatever you want. The temple is the same kind of thing. This is where God resides. Sometimes we get too casual with God in his holiness. Do you know what happened when people came in with unauthorized fire? When they came striking out their hands at God, they were burned up. In fact, God had told the high priest, when you come in for the big once-a-year atonement sacrifice, and you're actually going to come into the most holy place, you come in with incense on you, or you'll die. Mm -hmm. 
And it happened. It happened a lot. Because people had to come in in the proper understanding of the holiness of God, that he was separate from them. And there's a way for us now to come because of Christ. And in God's mercy to us, he hears our prayers and he allows us to come before him. And sometimes we come charging up with our questions and we forget the holiness of God of what he's doing. So imagine you're Zechariah now, knowing the holiness of God, knowing that you are in danger of losing your life in this place. For 400 years, the people before you have not had a dial tone from God. And now you're standing, offering the incense, and angel is there. It's terrifying. And you ask a question, how will I know this will happen? And the angel says, because you did not believe, you will not speak. And now you're home, and you're trying to tell your wife that she's going to have a baby. And you can't use any words. I mean, it's, it's hilarious, this story, and the way that it's working out. And it's also terrifying because God is doing something so dramatic in the world. And for those who understand all the nuances of what's going on, it's not just dramatic. It's the entrance to the key players of the final scene. And it's really incredible. So here's Zechariah. He goes in. He hears that he's going to have a baby. The baby's name is supposed to be John. Let's read ahead in Luke chapter 1. Turn with me to, to verse 57. Luke chapter 1, sorry, verse uh, 67. The baby is born. When the baby is born, as custom, they, uh, all the people assemble and they have to name the baby. So they declare the name of the baby. And so the uh, leaders ask, what's the name of the baby? Let's name him Zechariah, like his daddy. And so Elizabeth, who's the mom, says, no, we're going to name the baby John. And the people protest. If you've ever had a, a, a family member with the same name as I do, you'll understand that. Okay, moving on. Um, and they say, well, nobody in the family is named John, so why will you name him John? So they turn to Zechariah and they say, what do you want to name the baby? And so he asks for a writing tablet because he still can't speak. And they hand him the tablet and he writes down on the tablet, his name is John. And the people are marveling at what happens because as soon as he writes it, his tongue is loosened and he starts proclaiming glory to God. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." Isn't that a beautiful prophecy? There's two parts to it. The first part is not about his child, because he addresses a child halfway through. The first part is about the salvation of our God. And as he's declaring this, he's declaring the salvation 
of a God who is visiting and redeeming his people. Who's raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You know, that's an interesting word, the horn of salvation. Isn't that a funny? We don't really talk about that a lot, do we? Maybe if you drive like a Dodge Ram or something. But horn of salvation, that's an odd thing to say. Horn of salvation in this time period had a couple meanings to it. It's sort of a play on words. The first meaning is that there is, the when you talk of the horn of an animal, it's the strength of an animal. So with the strength of an animal, uh, somebody can do something. So raising up the horn of somebody or uh, talking about the horns is reminiscent of that idea of uh, being charged by a bull. It's a scary thing. There's a lot of strength there. So the strength of God in salvation is one of the things that he's talking about. Another plan words, though, are the horns of the altar. So if you look at the right-hand side of the picture, the stairs going up to the big barbecue pit, on each of the four corners, there are horns that come off of that altar. That exact same configuration is the configuration of the table where Zechariah had been burning the incense before God. The altar of incense also had those little horns. And when the high priest came in for the Day of Atonement, he would sacrifice an animal and come in, and he would have to put the blood of that animal onto the horns of the altar as a sign before God that blood has been shed and will coming before you now for the, forg for the forg forgiveness of sins. Now, this is an incredible play in words because Zechariah is talking about the horn of salvation that's being raised up for us in the house of the servant of David. So he's talking about a person. And so most people, when they read this, would think, oh, here's a person who's coming in a lot of strength like that charging bull. But Zechariah's own context is having served in the temple where he is all the time going before the horns of this altar and the horns of the altar of incense where he was serving when the angel first came to him. What he's talking about is not just the strength of God that's coming in this person, but a person who will ultimately be, be the one who will appease this system, who will be the one to appease the blood allowing us to come before God. How do we know that? We know that because he goes on to say that he will give light to those who sit in the darkness. This is speaking of his son, John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord. To those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's only one way of peace with God. That one way of peace is through blood. Because this has it's proven it, this system. The only way to be at peace with God is through blood. In fact, Zechariah is talking and he's praying, and in his prophecy here in verse 75, he says that we are being delivered from our enemies, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The only way to be holy or righteous was through blood. But Zechariah was one who understood more than most what it was like to be in the fear of God. Because standing in the place burning incense in the holy place, Suddenly, as the angel appeared to him, he was struck with fear of God actually doing something, God actually speaking to them. There was no more just dial tone on the line. Now God was actually visiting his people again after all these years. And the fear of God had struck him. And in his fear, he understood there's only one way. There's only one way that we can actually walk in righteousness and holiness, that we can actually know the peace of God, and it's through blood. It's through the altar being appeased. It's through God receiving us because the price had been paid. You see, Zechariah is not just talking about some great thing that God will do. He's talking about the great one that God is sending. 
He's talking about Jesus Christ who is coming to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from death. He is the fulfillment of all the promises from old, that God would save his people, that he would redeem us, that he would be the one to take us through. Imagine for a moment with me, if Zechariah were watching the scene when Jesus grows up and comes, which takes a lot of time. Uh, Jeff was just reminding me about the timing of God and how in that timing, it's not just one and done. Jesus doesn't come, born in the manger, everything's good. Man, it wouldn't be great if God just did things fast sometimes. He rarely does, doesn't he? Jesus grows, it takes a couple years before the Magi even visit the baby. It takes a couple more years before Jesus is in the temple instructing the Pharisees. It takes more years before Jesus even starts his ministry. It's years and years and years in the unfolding of what God is actually doing. It's incredible to think about how God's timing is so perfect, but he's also so dramatic in how he demonstrates what he's doing in his timing. And so here he's got a priest who stands at the altar of incense, which is representing God's presence in the temple. It's representing the pleasing aroma that's coming up. And it's representing the prayers of the people that God is receiving. And God answers the prayers of this man to say, you have a son who's coming. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And Zechariah, as he receives in the Holy Spirit this message from God that he prophesies about, most of what he prophesies about is the salvation that God is bringing through the one Jesus, not, only, not even his own son. It's incredible to see how God is unfolding this revelation of what he's doing with Zechariah. And all these years later, God is going to take his own son, Jesus Christ, and he's going to put him on an altar, if you will. That altar is going to look very different than this one. It's not going to be the barbecue anymore. It's going to be something different. And Jesus Christ, who is God, is going to take all of the sin of mankind upon himself, and he will die for us. You see, the beauty of this prophecy that Zechariah is telling us is that the way of holiness, the way of righteousness, the way of salvation is through the man Jesus. It's not just through a system. It's not through an angel visiting us. It's not through the birth of babies. It's through Jesus Christ who came, the perfect one who completely upheld the law of God and yet who would die as a sinner for all of us. Jesus Christ hangs on the cross in his adult life as he's hanging on the cross, the Bible tells us that God is pouring out all of the wrath of sin on him. What did Jesus do? Do you remember while he's on the cross? What did he do? He's hanging on the cross. What were some of the things that he did? He's talking to the thieves. Yep. Yep. Yeah. One of them wants to be with him in paradise. He says, yes. The other one's kind of scoffing. Yes, he did that. What else did he do? Yeah, cried out, forgive, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He cried out the psalm, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? That's good. Could you imagine Jesus is God, eternally the Son of God, who's never been separate from the Father. And now in one instance, he's hanging on the cross in his time of greatest need, in his time of most anguish, and the Lord turns his back on him because Jesus is becoming the object of wrath for us. It's incredible. He said, uh, it is done. Yeah, he says, it is finished. It is finished. Isn't that interesting? It is finished. Who is he talking to when he said, it is finished? He's talking to God. He's praying. He's praying, right? 
Zechariah stood at the service in the temple offering incense, which had three things that they did. One representing what? The presence of God. Jesus Christ hung on the cross. He is God. He is God. Hanging on the cross, suffering for our sin. Zechariah burned the incense, which represents the prayers of the people. And Jesus Christ prayed one last prayer. It was the final thing he did before he dies. Do you know how you die when you're crucified? You suffocate. You don't bleed to death. It's not the beatings. You suffocate because the way you're hanging, you can't support your body enough to actually fill your lungs with air. When God made man in the garden, he scooped up some clay, he formed it into a man, and it says that he breathed life into him, and the man became a living being. That's how he formed people. Those people rebelled against God just like we have. They have sinned, they fell short, they didn't do what God said, they didn't uphold his standard. We have not upheld his standard, not any one of us, none of us, except for Jesus. And God's poetic way of receiving the last prayer of his son on earth, the last breath that he would breathe, was to crush the life out of him. And the very life that God had breathed into man, which was by his own word, which was Christ himself, to bring life into people, to make them living beings, he squished out of his own son because he wanted to fill us with his life again. And Zechariah got to have a foretaste in a prophetic way as he's standing at the altar of incense that had been sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, at the barrier between the holy place and God's actual presence where he really was. After 400 years of having heard nothing, here's Zechariah standing there at the very precipice of the place where he can almost see where God is. And he's feeling and smelling this incense. He knows this idea of God filling the temple and his presence there. He can hear the prayers outside because Luke 1 tells us that all the multitude had gathered together at the time of incense to offer prayers. And they're praying and he can hear the prayers outside coming up. And he knows that God's presence is there and he sees this angel and he's filled with fear because he knows he cannot accomplish all the things that God has called him to. If Zechariah were to turn and say, thank you for that and walk into the holy place, he would immediately die. He's not authorized to come in. He can't just come before the king. He can't just stick out his hand and ask questions. And so instead he becomes mute. But now here's the son of God who's hanging on the cross. And the last thing he says, the last breath he has in his body is, it is finished. And God squeezes out the life of his own son for you and for me. Why would he do that? He does it because the blood of bulls and goats was not enough. It's not enough to save us. We sinned, so a man has to die. But none of us could take that punishment, so instead he sent his own son who would take the punishment for us. He heard our prayers asking for salvation. They came up to him like incense, and so he had an offering that was for us that was his own Christ. And he squeezed the life out of him that we would be filled with his life. Thank you, Jesus. The last thing that the incense represented was a pleasing aroma to God. You see, we know from the prophet Isaiah that it pleased God to crush his son. 
because Jesus was that offering that would save us from sin. You see, God loved us so much that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish anymore, but now have everlasting life. God's gospel was foreshadowed in such a detailed, minute, you skip it when you read it way, of a priest who stood after 400 years of not even hearing a dial tone. And then God just unfolded, this is what I'm doing. And for those of us with ears to hear, I want to tell you right now, God has heard your prayers. He has sent his son for our salvation. It's come up to him like a pleasing aroma because Christ's sacrifice was enough. It was enough to save us from sin. It was enough to take our shame. It was enough to take our our brokenness, our sin, our disobedience. It was enough to take all the things that we wish we had never done. It was enough to take all our secrets and say, Lord, here it is. Not because we are good enough, but because he is good enough. And his love is so marvelous. And so now as we marvel at Christ, as we marvel at the things that he's done, the Bible tells us that now our prayers are as incense to God. This pleasing aroma that comes up. Because as God receives those prayers and breathes them in, think, everybody just take a smell for a second. Depending where you're at, you can turn your head if it's, you know, your husband has bad breath. Take a smell. When you smell, you breathe in, don't you? You breathe in. And so now as we pour out our prayers to God, it comes up to Christ as a pleasing aroma because the grave could not hold him. Because he really died for us. God really squished the life out of him. The breath really came out of his lungs. He really did die for us. But he rose again. And now he sits on the throne. And as we pray, he breathes in that good breath of hearing and smelling all the incense of our prayers, and he receives it, and he says yes to us. Why can he say that? Why can he respond in our prayers? Why can he do all those things? Because he paid all the penalty for us. He completed the system. He completed the the debt that we owe, which is why he cries out, it is finished, because the debt really is cleared. And I'm not talking about the great Christmas present we all want. Oh, if I could just get that whatever special thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the depth of the prayers from our souls that say, Lord, save us in our time of need. Father, it's been so long with a dial tone. Please, where are you? And he cries out and he says, here I am. Here's my son. He was crushed for you. He was raised for you. And now he receives our prayers. Isn't that incredible? And the way we come to him now is through this same thing, but it's different. It's no more sacrifices of bulls and goats. It's one sacrifice of Christ for all time. And we come to him. We say, Lord, forgive me. I repent, which is the ministry of John the Baptist. This is what Zechariah got to foresee, is the way of how to come to him, to prepare the way. The way is prepared by saying, Lord, here's my heart. Here's my deeds. Here's my secrets. Forgive me. Your sacrifice is enough. I can never have incense apart from you. And that's what John's ministry was. That's what Zechariah was going to then disciple his son into understanding. That filled with the Holy Spirit, he was going to be preparing the way for a Christ who would actually come and take away the sins of the, of the world. But the way we come to him is by saying, Lord, forgive me, I repent. I come to you. Wash me clean in your basement, basin again. Lord, fill me up with yourself. Lord, let my prayers be incense to you. Forgive me. Forgive me that I've walked astray. The best part of this is, as we marvel at Christ, he really hears our prayers. He really responds to us. 
and he really saves us. We have a God now who is with us. The Lord is like our incense. He is not just representing his presence. He really is here. He really is receiving our prayers. And he really is all of God's grace to us. So this Christmas, as we think about all these things, I hope you can make it Christmas Eve. We're going to have a wonderful time together. But as you think about this time, don't let it just pass with trees and lights and presents. Instead, as we marvel at Christ, remember the glory of the drama of how he unfolded what he was going to do. And when you feel like you're only getting a dial tone from God, remember that he sent his son, that he would save us, he would bring us up, and he really does hear us when we pray. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you sent your son in such a dramatic way, Lord, that even you would send someone to prepare the way for him. Lord, thank you that after all those years of silence, Lord, you entered the room, Lord, with such drama, with such excitement, God. It's incredible. Lord, as we think about Jesus, whose breath was squeezed out for us that we can have life, Lord, we ask you in the name of Jesus, forgive us, God. Forgive us for thinking that we can do it right. Forgive us for thinking that we can go our own way. Forgive us for thinking that we're good enough or we can bring the right things. Lord, we submit to you, God, that we have nothing apart from you. And so, Lord, with nothing, we come before you and say, Lord, forgive us on the basis of Christ. Lord, forgive us because he died for us. Forgive us because he rose again. Forgive us because he is our advocate. Forgive us because he's the only one who could appease all the things that you set in place for your worship. Lord, we submit ourselves to you, and I ask you, Lord, for a blessing of your presence. Lord, that every time everyone here prays, it would be as if they can smell the incense coming up. Lord, that they would know your touch, that this Christmas wouldn't just be a great time of friends and family, but Lord, let them know the, the clinging that you have to them as you're bringing them to yourself. Lord, that they would know your grace upon them and your hand of salvation that is holding us up. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be blessed. Have a great Christmas, and hopefully we'll see you here Tuesday night. God bless you all.